Let us begin. Time for question. Yep, question. Go ahead. I have to check and see. I don't know. There are midrashim about it for sure. There are. There's the midrash. He's in Paro's house, the famous midrash, and Paro testing him. Is that the hot coals? Hot coals, and right, that's one midrash. There, there are a bunch. The truth is that, in terms of your question, um, as I said in the Chumash, I don't think we Chumash presents Moshe. We'll talk, we'll talk about it today, but I don't think Chumash presents Moshe as having some deeper connection to Paro. It's not like in the movies where he's a father, he's a father figure. I mean, he, you don't actually see him in that sense. The Chumash doesn't describe Moshe growing up in Paro's house. It only discusses him being brought up by Paro's daughter. He's, he's Paro's daughter's child. And Paro's daughter, I think this is an important point, I didn't mention this at all, but when you read the Chumash about Paro's daughter, Something's very striking about Paro's daughter, and that is the Chumash. You know from Sefer Breshit that the Chumash, one of the complexes of, of words that the Chumash uses in the beginning of the Torah, very importantly, is this threefold seeing and taking and good. Seeing and taking and good figures in three stories in the Chumash, right in the beginning of the Chumash. Ganadin is one of them. Vene Elohim, chapter 6, who see the women and take them, that they're good, is two. And the third one, very interestingly, is uh, the story of Abraham and Sarah. Paro sees that she's good and takes her. She was taken to Pharaoh's house. Now, there it doesn't actually say he sees she was good. In the case of Abraham, what's very interesting is it says, Abraham says, Say you're my sister in order that it be good for me, which is a very interesting variation on the theme, which has immense significance. But let's leave that out. Not our problem now. But what's interesting is that the same complex of terms we find in the beginning of Sefer Shemot in conjunction with the birth of Moshe. Chapter 2. It begins in the strangest way. When Moshe is born, it says, Batera Otoki Tovu, that his mother saw that he was good which is a very strange expression. What mother doesn't see that the baby is good? So therefore, kitovu, obviously, since it's an expression which is unusual, requires a lot of thought and interpretation. Rashi goes one way, the Ramban goes a different way with it, but for our purposes, he's described as tov. Now what's interesting is, so he's tov, but because of the threat against the boys, the mother and the sister place him in a little basket by the side of the water. And then we're told that Pharaoh's daughter comes down to bathe in the river. And then it says in verse number 5, She saw the ark that Moses is in, and she sent her slave, Amotah, and she took it. So there, in that verse, it's very interesting. We see, it says that she saw, and it says that she took. So we have seeing and taking, and what does she see and take? Something, somebody, who in verse number uh, two, three verses earlier, is described as tov. So there we have the same complex. We have something described as tov. We have somebody seeing and taking.
Fine. Now the question becomes, what do we make of that complex here? It's a question of interpretation. What does it mean? We know that it's a significant complex. It appears in Gan Eden, obviously in the primal story of the Chumash. It appears in, with Abraham, it appears with B'nai Elohim. It appears in the context of the world which is destroyed. And now we have it in the context of Pharaoh's daughter. So the question becomes now, what does it mean? Okay? That's the question. So my suggestion as to what it means is the following. I think what it means is that in the story of the, the seeing and the taking in the three stories of Genesis are all essentially related. They're all similar in the following sense. The seeing and the taking in the first story is the primal sin. Woman saw that the fruit was good and she took it. And in other words, and, and what is that sin actually? What is the primal sin? The sin is the sin of disobedience. And the Chumash makes that point by informing us something very important. That when the snake goes to the woman and says, I heard you can't eat any of the fruit. So the woman says, that's not true. We can eat all of the fruit, just the stuff in the middle of the garden. But Tochagan, that we may not eat, God said you can't eat it lest you die. So what does that mean? Why does the Chumash mention that altogether? It means that the woman knows that it's forbidden. Because you might, you might say to yourself, how would she know? God never spoke to the woman. The command not to eat the fruit was given only to the man and not to the woman. The woman doesn't exist yet. She's part of him, okay? But she knows about it. That's very important. So therefore, when she takes of the fruit and eats it, even though she was not commanded directly, but she presumes, and it seems to be the case, that you are forbidden to eat it. Okay. So in other words, what is the point of seeing and taking in the first story and the others? Seeing and taking in those three stories. In the first, it's an explicit command, you shall not eat. In the second story, with the Bnei Elohim and Benota Adam, there is no command. God did not say to the Bnei Elohim, you may not take, but it's presumed that they know it. The Bnei Elohim must start with that. But apart from that, you know it anyway, because you ate the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. So the Torah presumes that after the Garden of Eden, human beings can know. Since we can know, we are held responsible without being explicitly commanded. And the same thing is true in the third story. In the third story where Pharaoh sees and takes Sarah, right? Um, without her consent, right? No one is... He didn't, care, he didn't ask her. In that case... I would say the co-conspirator, the accomplice of the crime, is Abraham. Because he's the one that sets it up. First he goes down there, shouldn't be there. And then he says, it's my sister. And the toll accrues to him. So in the third instance, it's also about acting in an immoral way. And it, I would say a violation of God's either explicit command in the first instance, or implicit command in the second instance. You don't need... Uh, always to be told exactly what's right and wrong, the Torah assumes that you can figure it out. And I would say the the related uh, point, which is important, not for now, important in terms of life and certainly important in terms of religion, it doesn't mean that if something is not prohibited, that actually it's, that it necessarily is a uh, is a is a good thing. That's a mistake that some people make. If, 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 if it's not prohibited, then it's, then, then it's okay. And that's a mistake. That is that basically, a lot of that, I sad to say, I must confess, 
is thinking in some, some of the orthodox circles who have this very strict code. So, if it's not usher, so then it's okay. That's just a terrible mistake, and it's a failure to understand in any deep sense what religion is actually about. But that's in separate conversation. In any event, my point being that in the case of Abraham, and the case of the Bnei Elohim, and the case, obviously, of the woman, Garden of Eden, and the man who also eats it, she gives him to eat, it's a disobedience. Now, why do I mention all of this? This was not on the agenda this morning, but you asked the question. And here's the point about Pharaoh's daughter. It's related to your point about Paro. Pharaoh's daughter, and this is the point of the story, why did the Chumash use the language of Pharaoh's daughter, seeing and taking? Because the point of the Chumash is that Pharaoh's daughter is engaged in an act of deep disobedience to her father. Her father has said explicitly, all the girls you can keep alive, but all the boys, throw them into the river. He did not mean throw them into the river and fish them out. He meant throw them into the river and they'll die in the river, right? It's clear because the girls can live. But as far as the boys, they shouldn't live. So when Paro's daughter sees this basket by the side of the water and sends her servant out and rescues this child and she has mercy, pity on him, it says. And she said, this is one of the Hebrew children, right? And she adopts him as a son, not just that she has mercy on him, but she actually adopts him. But he ben. She sees him as her child. By the way, that's obvious from a different point in the story as well. That when the sister comes down and says, shall I find you a nursing woman from the Jews? Pharaoh's daughter said, yes, you should, and I will pay her wages. Why did the Chumash say, I will pay her wages? Well, it's totally superfluous in the story. She could have said, yes, I will pay her wages means that it's actually, she's my child. The person works for me because she's nursing my child. So even from the very beginning, when she takes the child out of the water, she is already adopting the child. Now the point, and therefore the point being, my point here, after this long-winded uh, little uh, diatribe, is this, that Pharaoh's daughter is actually, one might say, like Moses himself, a kind of rebel against Pharaoh. It's an act of rebellion, it's an act of disobedience over here, because Pharaoh has given his rule, and Pharaoh's daughter is contradicting the rule, which is why the Chumash, to make this point, puts it in terms of seeing and, and, and taking, which is the classic disobedience in the beginning of the first book of the Torah. In the beginning of the second book of the Torah, we also have an act of disobedience, which is presented in those terms. I would add that not only is Pharaoh's daughter engaged as an act of disobedience, but obviously the midwives of chapter 1 are also engaged in an act of disobedience. But there, it didn't use the language of seeing and taking. There it simply said they refused to do it. Their, their job is to bring life into the world. They have no intention of killing children who are being born. That's not their thing. So of course that's an act of disobedience. But when it comes to Paro's daughter, there, the Chumash goes beyond and to say, it's the, it's the same thing. As the, so the issue is not, disobedience per se is not a bad thing. The question is, whom, whom are you disobeying? In the case of Breshit, you're disobeying God's explicit or implicit command. In the case of Pharaoh's daughter, it's disobedience of a father's command, the Pharaoh. And the reason I make this point is that the fact that Pharaoh's daughter adopts Moshe from the Chumash's perspective does not mean that Pharaoh's adopting Moshe. I would say the opposite is true. That Pharaoh's daughter is adopting Moses in spite of the father, against the father. It's actually an act of disobedience against the father. And the, the 
the point here, which is, I think, a fine point. There's a fine point over here, which is this: that in the question, in terms of Moses' identity, which is our topic, actually, one of, related to our basic topic about Moshe, in terms of Moses' identity, is Moses a Jew or an Egyptian? And we made the point that he has two mothers. He has no father, but he has two mothers. One is Pharaoh's daughter, and one is his natural Israelite mother. I think we have to make the point that, from a certain perspective, it's true. Pharaoh's daughter is an Egyptian. That's for sure. On the other hand, we have to recognize, even though she's an Egyptian, she's Pharaoh's daughter, but the Chumash is presenting her not as a standard Egyptian. She's one of the Egyptians who is uh, defying the rules of, of, of Mitzrayim. So Moses is not simply being taken by, on one hand, he has a Jewish woman who nurses him, gives him the values, and on the other hand, he has this Egyptian woman. She's not a standard Egyptian woman. She is Egyptian, I think. That's true. And he has to decide if he's a Jew or an Egyptian. And Moses makes that choice when he goes out to his brethren. We talked all about that. That's an important point. But I think we had, the point has to be finessed over here because it is not, she's not a standard Egyptian. She's maybe an Egyptian person, but the values of Pharaoh's daughter are very much consonant with the best values of the Chumash. Disobedience to Pharaoh. Disobedience to God. Yes? I'm just saying, she teaches him in a sense of disobedience. Because that's in her nature as well. Um, that could be that the Moses, dis- that's my point, Moses is disobedience in the next story. Moses killing the Egyptian, beating up the Jewish slave, is not just about saving the Jew. From Pharaoh's perspective, it's not about killing one Egyptian. It's an act of defiance against the basic rule of slavery. That's what sets the order. So it's, I would say that's true, that Moses' disobedience, not that his sister and the mother are also involved in a certain sense. It's, it's, it's a big setup. They're watching out for him, caring for him, etc. They're trying to save him. But that's more natural. It's, it's, it's her child. Well, why wouldn't... But Pharaoh's daughter is, 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 is not connected initially to Moshe in any way. So I think that's true. And that's an important point about Pharaoh's daughter. And it doesn't really fully contradict... I mean, I raise it because it, in a certain sense it contradicts the point we made earlier that Moses having to choose between being an Egyptian and a Jew. Because even Pharaoh's daughter, actually, is more Jew than an Egyptian in the context of the values. She defies Pharaoh. Yeah? Um, It's after he's nursed. Weaned. He's weaned. Well, the question is what you have to... I looked into this, actually. Various habits of nursing, how, how long children were nursed. Uh, longer than it happens today, actually. It could be three years. It could be four years. Maybe even it's possible. It's possible. Um, it is possible. Um, so we don't know. You know doesn't really say. It's a good point. After he grows up by Yigdal, right? Point, I think the point of that, by the way, just to, let me just rephrase your question in a certain way. Why does the Torah use that word? Torah could have said, after she finished nurse, nursing him, like, like, like with Isaac, says, after Isaac was nursed, Abraham makes a party. There it says, nursing is finished. Over here the Torah uses the term to grow up. By Yigdal Ish. Right? That's, um... Vayigdal Hayeled, verse number 10. So your question, why did it say Vayigdal Hayeled? Why didn't it say, like it says with Abraham, after he was nursed? I think there's a reason for it. The reason is that what the Chumash wants to emphasize 
is that Moses is with his natural mother up to the point that he grows up. The Chumash wants to emphasize the influence that his mother, unnamed in the story over here, but the mother and probably the sister have on Moshe. So it's not just she nurses him, but it's more than that. Because if just nurse, he would have said, Vayigomel, Adhigomel, as it does with, with, with Yitzchak. Now it means that the whole point of the story, the point of the story is to bring Moshe back to his mother, so that the values of the mother can be uh, transmitted to Moshe. The nursing becomes not just a biological act, but a transmission of values. The one who understood this point, which is, I think, fairly obvious nonetheless, the one who understood it very well, not surprisingly, one of the great interpreters of the, of the Torah, maybe the greatest actually, I don't, I don't know the name of this person, unnamed, but it's whoever wrote the book of Shmuel. book of Shmuel presents us with the character of Samuel. Samuel is based largely on the character of, of Moses. When I say based on Moses, I don't mean to suggest that he's identical to Moses. First of all, that would be... The book of Shmuel is not going to work that way. The, the Bible doesn't work that way, but... It means that the character of Moses and Samuel have many commonalities. One of them is exactly this point about the nursing. If you remember the story of Shmuel, Hanet made this prayer, Hanet prays for a child, and God grants her, 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 her prayer. And she promised, remember that she takes a, a nether, makes a vow, that if you give me this child, I will dedicate the child to God all the days of his life, and no razor shall cut his hair. It'd be like a nausea. But she made a vow. I will give the child to you for all the days of his life. Her husband, whose name is Elkanah, the book of Shmuel says, sure you'll remember this, makes periodic pilgrimages to the temple. He goes periodically to the temple from time to time. So after the baby's born, and then it says in the book of Shmuel, and now it came the time of the pilgrimage. Right? So Elkanah says to Hannah, we're going. And he, she always goes with him. He says, time for the pilgrimage. She says, dear, why don't this time you go without me? I don't want to go. I want to stay home with my child until he's fully nursed. Elkanah doesn't like it, actually. He's concerned about that. Okay, dear, do what you want. Remember, he puts it in terms of, basically says, remember that the, the vow that you took. Right? He says, God should fulfill God's, God's promise means that God, the giving of the child was contingent on the fulfillment of your vow. You took a vow, you're going to dedicate the child to, to God. He's concerned that now she's backing out of her dedication. She's married, she has a baby, and actually she wants a baby, you know, she loves the baby. So she's, she has all other commitments, but so what? This is more important. So he suspects that she's not going to fulfill the vow. So she, she says no. I want to wait till the kid is fully nursed and only then I will dedicate him to God. Now the point is the following. When you read the story of Hannah in conjunction with the, the story of Moshe, which of course it has to be read because the character of Shimon and Moshe have many commonalities, then suddenly what she's saying makes sense in the following way. What, what is she, why must she wait to nurse the child fully? Why can't she give the child up before he's fully nursed or stop nursing early? Or hire someone else to nurse the child. Probably there were people who make a living by nursing, you know, wet nurses or whatever. But she's making a different point. 
once you read it in the, in the light of Moshe, what she's saying is, in her own sweet little way, not that Shechan is so sweet, but what she's saying is, in a nice way, is, if you think I'm going to give my child away before I can inculcate him with my values, if you think for a minute I'm going to permit anybody else to teach my, my, my child, when I'm surrounded by either wicked people or people like you, who are sweet and pious people, but you're a blithering idiot, and so is the high priest of Shiloh, who's very saintly, but he's also very blind. If you think I'm going to permit my child to be educated by them, you've got another thing coming, mister. He's going to go up there when I have completed his first education. And by the way, the interesting feature of the book of Shmuel is that even after she brings him to Shiloh, she dedicates him to God. She promises she, well, she gives him away. But the, but the book of Shmuel makes another point about, about Hannah, which is that in the future, she would go up with, 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 with him, Miyamim, Yamima. She would go Miyamim in chapter 2, I think it's verse 19 in chapter 2. And when she go, would go up Miyamim, Yamima with her husband to bring his sacrifice of the days, that lives by the clock, you know, he sees it to go up. What would she do when she went up to Shigo? Who remembers? What would she do? No one knows. Got to read, study the book of Shmuel again. I can't say it's the greatest thing ever written because we have Genesis. But it's in second place. I think. She brought him a coat. Not a small detail. That is not a small detail. It doesn't mean, it could mean, which is not wrong, that maybe in Shiloh gets a little chilly. And as he's growing, she wants to give him a coat which demonstrates her concern, you know. If you have a child who's living in a cold place, or if your kids are in the Israeli army or something like that, they don't provide you with enough coats, believe it or not. So people collect money and they buy coats, they send the coats to the soldiers. Israeli army. Chapter 2, verse 19. First book of Samuel. If I'm, I don't have it in front of me, that's my guess. It's not far off, anyway. Is it verse 19? It is verse 19. Okay, not bad. Chapter 2, verse... But it means much more than that, of course, because what, what does it mean to have a cult? It's more than protection. I'm here with you. You're thinking logically. You can't do that. I mean, the logic is fine. You have, you have to think contextually. The cult in the book of Samuel was not a little detail. For example, the demonstration that Saul has lost his kingship, he has his coat. And not only that, there's even another story that's more significant than that. It's related. No, no, in Samuel, 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 Samuel. Joseph is right, but nobody knows this? I'll tell you what it is. No, that's the coat, as I mentioned. David tears his coat. David tears his coat. That's right, that's true, that's the same story. Okay, well, there's another story. I got that story. There's another one. Very famous story. No, no, I, I got it. But, but there's another story. Actually, one of the great stories, there's so many of them. The story is that after Samuel dies, Saul is very nervous because the Philistines are attacking, they're massing their army, and he doesn't know what to do. He, he cries out to God for help. He goes to the prophets. He the dreams the Urim, whatever, there's no answer. God is not answering Samuel. Samuel has banned all the witches from the land. Chapter 28. He says to his people, anybody know, are, are, are there any witches around? 
the witch of Endor. So he goes to the witch of Endor, but he doesn't say he saw. He disguises himself. And when he goes to the witch of Endor, he says, I want you to raise me somebody from the dead. She says, don't you know, I can't do that. If Saul finds out about it, he's going to kill me. I swear he's not going to hurt you, he says. He's not going to, Saul won't bother you. He says, who do you want raised from the dead? I want Samuel raised from the dead. So, says she begins, she, she says, all right. And then all of a sudden she screams. She says, you must be Saul. He says, why would Samuel appear to somebody else? He says, forget that, don't worry about it. Who was that? What did you see? Remember what did she say? I saw an old man wrapped in a coat. Who owed me eel? The point is, what marks Samuel in the story, it's very striking actually. They're the, they're the old maestro, the, the author of Shua, whoever it is. It's totally in his element, but the witch of Endor, of course. The hero of the chapter. You understand, the witch in the Chumash is the ultimate capital crime. Oven, you don't, the ultimate Avodah is Ov. For the writer of Shmuel, of course, that's the hero. So the witch says, an old man wearing a coat. And the point is, the coat is representing two things, actually. The coat represents, of course, leadership. But when you read that story, you remember another story. Another story. You mentioned the coat of, of, of Saul being torn in the cave. That's one story. But there's another story of a torn coat. That's the story in chapter 15 of Amalek. At the end of that story, Samuel says to Saul, God has rejected you as king. And he starts to walk away, at which point he grabbed for his coat and he tore it. Now what's unclear in the story is, of course, whose coat is torn? Is it the coat of Saul that's torn? Or is it the coat of Samuel that's torn? The more plausible reading of it, there's an ambiguity, maybe a purposeful ambiguity. The more plausible reading of it, I think, is that it's Samuel's coat. Because he's walking away. In other words, you're walking away from me, and I grab, I try to grab you, to hold you to come back, and I, take, I, said I, grab, I grab the coat, I t- and it gets torn because you're walking away. That's what it sounds like. Of course, the question that I can't solve all the problems now, if in fact the torn coat represents the demise of King Saul and the loss of his kingship, why would the symbol be the torn coat of Samuel? That's an excellent question, actually. To which there's an excellent answer. I can't get into it now. But um, it's a very good answer to it. But my point is, when, when did the people request a king anyway in the book of Samuel? Well, what precipitates the request for kingship in the book of Samuel? You might say, well, how is this relevant to Moshe? It's deeply relevant, because actually, Shmuel is based on Moshe. When do the people want a king? <coughs> Chapter 8 of Samuel. What precipitates... It doesn't disappear. He's, they go to him to ask. They, he's very. He's very there. They go to Shmuel and say, "Choose us a king." They want Shmuel to choose the king. But why do they go to him in the first place? How does the chapter start? He's old. When he's old, the people request a king. Samuel, actually, in the book of Samuel, was always mentioned as not being old. He's a child. We know him. But he leaves the people for less than one chapter, which is chapter 7. Chapter 8 is old already. So there you have that image, the witch of Endor raises from the dead Samuel, and the text tells us, what did you see, he says to her. I saw two things about this man. Number one, he's old. Which of course, that's old is what precipitates the kingship. 
but I saw something else. I saw the coat. The coat of Samuel represents the loss of kingship. It's very striking, actually. The point is, the mother bringing him a coat in chapter 2, verse 19, is not a small detail if you know how to read Tanakh. Because you're reading it not just that verse. You read it within the book of Shavuot. The coat is the coat of his leadership. His mother is not going just to warm him up when he gets cold. His mother is training him for leadership. I would say the training of Chana takes two forms. One is to bring him up as a, as a, little, as a baby to give him the right values. He incul- he, she inculcates him with her values. I would add something to inculcation of values in the case of Chana, which is also related to Moshe, and that is that Chana and Shmuel have one thing in common. And they have several things in common, but one actually stands out in terms of our, in terms of our tradition, in terms of the rabbinic tradition, our, our Torah Shabbat Peh, Chana and Shmuel, and not just Torah Shabbat Peh, it's also in the Tanakh. There's one thing that marks them, if you had to pick out one thing that marks the two of them, they are masters of something. Prayer. Chana, Chana's prayer is the, is the paradigm of Shmona Esrei, prayer. Shmuel is known for his prayer. Moshe v'yaron b'cho'anov u'shmuel b'korei shemo korim el Hashem v'hu yanet shemo leads through prayer. Defeats the enemy through prayer. Where did he get that from? He was well trained. His, his mother is the great, is the one who prays in the temple, the Siwan prayer. So there's something about Chana is imparting to her son some of her values. What's very interesting about the book of Shmuel is that the maestro, of course, is never can. There's a difference between Chana and Shmuel, which is Chana in her prayers after she has the baby prays to God that hopes that there's going to be a king who will carry out God's will. Her son Samuel is 1,000% against kingship. So there's always twists and turns in the book. But my point is that the book of Shmuel has Chana raising this child and inculcating the values in two senses. A, through the giving of the, through the nursing, and waiting, it must be completed, only when it's completed, and then by continuing, even after he, she sends him away, dedicates him to God. But she still brings him a coat periodically, miyamim yamima. And the point is that the, since the character of Shmuel is largely based upon Moshe, he's the second Moses, one might say, now we go back to our verse, and that the answer to your question, why did it say Vayigdal Hayeled? Why didn't it say Vayigamer Hayeled? As it says with Isaac. So my answer is, because the Chumash wants to emphasize that he, he, she, he was with his mother till he grows up. During all of that period, so the nursing should be understood not just as a physical act of sustaining the child that he can physically grow, but the inculcation of values that the one who understood this perfectly was the author of the book of Shua. That's my short answer to your, to your question. Well, here's, here's what you see about this, okay? I must say, with all due modesty, it's pretty good, you know? Now, here's the point. This, this is one word. This thing is a gold mine, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's unlimited, actually. Because what you have, it, the complexity of it is very interesting, because what you have is one text interpreting the other, or maybe the two texts together, actually they interpret each other. And you see that, you go back to the Chumash, and you see how this was understood, even before you get to Rashi and the Ramban and all this, and the moderns and all that. But you see already in the, within the Bible itself, 
how they choose to understand what's going on. Just a few words over here, but each word is very precious to us. Yeah. Yes, it does. The case of Shmuel, it says it. Correct. But there, it's making, there it doesn't have to say it. I'll tell you why. Because there the context makes it obvious because the point of the story of Shmuel is she's breaking the rules. The husband says to her, time to go. So the, the, the point of over there is she says, I'm not going with you. She always goes with him. She's an obedient wife. She's a, you know, she, she goes with him. But this time she says, I can't go with you because I'm, I'm, I'm staying with him. He, he's not going there. So he's fully so there. The, the, didn't have to say vayigdal, and I would go even beyond that. Even after he is vayigdal, she still she still connects to him. She still brings him the code even later on. She doesn't actually trust. Here's the interesting thing. She well, that, that's the last thing about Shmuel because we'll get stuck there forever. But on one, it's very interesting. I will dedicate this boy to God all the days of his life. There's something very curious about what she does. Who, to whom does she dedicate the boy? Where does she send Shmuel? She sends Shmuel to uh, Shiloh. Now she, she, I believe, and it's obvious that the book does not think too well of Shiloh. Shiloh is about to be destroyed. God hates Shiloh. God hates the priests of Shiloh. They're wicked people. The sons of Eli are wicked people. But nonetheless, Hannah dedicates, gives hands Shmuel over to Shiloh to serve God. Now why does she do that actually? I think she's actually praying for Shiloh's destruction. That's what I believe. But even leave that out. But we know Shiloh's a bad place. So why does she, serve, why does she send him to Shiloh? And the answer I think is actually very simple. Why? Because in Shiloh, there's somebody whom Shmuel, who can be Shmuel's father figure. Somebody like, like Moses in the text. He doesn't have a father actually. His father's O'Connor. O'Connor's a well-meaning idiot. I mean, he's a good guy, but, but the point is, she, she actually hands him over to Shiloh, not so much to Shiloh. She hands him over, believe it or not, to, uh, to uh, Eli. Eli is his father. It says, She sees in Eli, with all Eli's deficiencies and lack of perception, she sees a certain saintliness to Ewi. Ewi is a holy man. He also was a blind man. But Shmuel becomes Ewi's true, true, true disciple. That's the point. That's actually a very important point in conjunction with the question that we, we ourselves discussed earlier about the difference between Moses and Samuel in terms of the, this father figure. And the, the, the point I was making is that when you read the Chumash, there's never a sense that Pharaoh is Moses' father. Never get that sense. His Pharaoh's daughter is Moses' mother. I, I, I accept that. But Pharaoh being the father, you don't see. That's not true in the case of Shmuel. In the case of Shmuel, the one that Shmuel is sent to interact with, he's sent to Ewe. He's Ewe's son. He's Ewe's disciple. And they have a deep relationship, the two of them. And that makes the story so much more poignant in the case of Shmuel, because Shmuel's first prophecy is to tell Ewi that he's going to be destroyed. It's not the same as Moses telling Pharaoh he's going to be destroyed or warning Pharaoh. Because there's no sense that Moses has a deep affection for Pharaoh. Never, I don't get that sense in the Chumash at all. But in the case of Ewi and Shmuel, that's not the case. Ewi is Shmuel's Rebbe. And that's, that's part of the way the, the book of Shmuel takes the Moshe story with Pharaoh 
I think moves it in a, a different direction. Okay. So much. Yes, please. Cloak. Uh, you use coat. Would cloak be more evocative of uh, like a kingly, like a special garment? Could be cloak. As in, jo- as, inter- in Joseph, as in Joseph, the Joseph story, that he has this beautiful cloak. Kutonet pasim. He has a kutonet. A coat. Kutonet's a coat. Oh, coat. oh that, yeah. Kutonet I mean, is a coat. Or, or that's just p- being picky. I mean, well, no, I think the point is correct. The point is that... that there's something about this garment. It's not just a garment. That's, that's your, true. What you're but let's put it this way. You, you chose the Joseph story, which is true. The Joseph, Joseph, Joseph story of the clothing appears in, in twice, actually. His father gave him a... I say three times. His father gave him a coat. That's a kutonet. A kutonet is a... Not, it's a fancy coat. It's not just a normal coat. A kutonet is a symbol of, of leadership. He, Jacob is showing, saying Joseph is the leading child. And he demonstrates this by giving him a cult. It probably wasn't the wisest thing to do, but that's what he does. Then Joseph, in the, later, when he, the brothers meet him, they take away his cult. Mm-hmm. He's sold down to Egypt. And there he has a different cult. That's the story of Potiphar's wife. She grabs his cult from him. He has another cult. And then when he's brought to Pharaoh, Pharaoh gives him a different cult. He changes his garments even before he gets to Pharaoh. And then he gets another coat. Joseph constantly losing his coat and getting a new coat. As opposed to Judah, by the way, who gets back the same coat. That's actually interesting. But the point is that, just in response to your comment, yeah. in the case of Joseph, the term is kutonet. Kutonet pasim. Kutonet pasim we also find, by the way, in the book of Shmuel, in the story of Yehuda, the story of Amnon and, 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 and Tamar. That Tamar, David's daughter, had a katonet pasim, actually. It's very striking. She has a katonet pasim. It means it's a sort of, of significance or royalty. And we have another guy who has a katonet in the book of Samuel, very important man. Hushai Arki. David's, one of David's chief advisors, very important person. He comes after David's exile from Jerusalem. Karua kutanto. His katonet is torn. Now, in the case of the book of Samuel, the term is not ketonet, no. the term is me'il. But I would point out the obvious, that a me'il and a ketonet are both two of the priestly vestments. Ketonet and me'il are both priestly, means such a such cult. It's, you know, when Chushayahaki comes to meet David, his ketonet is torn. The point is, a ketonet is not a military uniform, because he's not... He says to David, I want to go with you. He says, don't go with me. What are you for? You're another mouth to feed. You're not a soldier. You're not, but you can fight a different way. When you go back to Avshalom and give him some bad advice, be, you know, you'll be an ear and you'll be able to advise him and you'll be able to def- defeat the advice of the other guy he's got, my ex-advisor, named Achitofel. So the point is that the kutonet signifies he's not a warrior. It's also in the book of Samuel, a cult that a woman wears. The women aren't fighting battles in Samuel. Tamar has a, has a katonet pasim. But the point with the, the, common, the common element is whether you translate it cloak or coat or vestment or whatever you want, it's, it's a signifier of, of... Let's remember one thing about coats. At both the priesthood and also the kingship are marked by a coat. Coat means it's a position that you fill. I mean, anybody can be a king, by that I mean... You don't have to, be, have to be the most moral character in the world to be a king. There are plenty of kings in the book of Kings that are not very good. 
Same thing is true of a priest. A priest is, you wear those garments, you're, you're a priest. You wear the eight vestments, you're a high priest. No one's checking what if, well, if you're a, it's nice if you're a good person. We've had many priests who weren't so wonderful. As opposed to, say, the prophet. The prophet doesn't have any vestments. The prophet has no special calling. So that's different, that's the person. Anyway, in any event, the point is that, yes, it's true that in the Joseph story, you have the cult being significant. Shmuel, it's very significant as well. And that Chana is connecting. So, in the case of Moshe, which is our real topic over here, Moses' identity, which is a very interesting question, how does this kid who grows up with Pharaoh's daughter's house, how does he turn out the way he turns out? So that's what I talked about before. Because even Pharaoh's daughter is not actually, she's an Egyptian, yes, but she's also a defiant Egyptian. And then he has his mother and he has a sister. Okay, let's, now, let's, now let's begin this week's year. Up to now, this, was, this was the introduction. Look, the introduction is sometimes much better than the shear, i got to tell you. So, so this, um, this is... It's hard to really go wrong in these stories. I mean, you, now let's get to... Last week we discussed something actually was very interesting. Aaron's role. Moshe is sharing the leadership with Aaron and pointed out last week, without, this is not going to go over, that Aaron is represented within the Bible and I would say within the book of Shemot in two different ways. Sometimes he was represented essentially as a full partner, or almost a full partner, that we had, we saw that last week. Sometimes, in some of the stories, certainly one of them, in the story of the snare, he's not represented that way at all. He's represented as someone that God doesn't even want. And he's a, God accepts Aaron, because what choice does God have? Moshe refuses to go without some help. So God provides Aaron. Now what I wanted to start now is Moses' negotiation with, uh, with the Paro, which is related to what we've been talking about in terms of his relationship to Paro. Moshe's, Moshe's negotiation with Paro, which takes the, over the course of all the ten plagues, Moshe has a very lengthy negotiation with Paro. Paro was not an easy guy to deal with, you know. He's a tough customer. He keeps on backing out. He makes some concessions. And we have to look at how Moshe interacts with Paro. Moshe has accepted upon himself the responsibility to go back to, to the Egypt and to try to take this people out of Mitzrayim. Uh, before I, what I'm not going to discuss, I'm going to skip over it because it will take us, maybe we'll get back to it later. I'm not going to discuss the story that appears at the end of chapter 4, a very celebrated story, about Moses' encounter with God at the, uh, at the, at the inn. A mysterious story when God appears and tries to kill him, and he's saved by the, through the circumcision of his son, which is performed by Tzipporah, his wife. That's an interesting story. Let's leave that for now. But we get beyond that story. Uh, Moshe is a, meets Aaron in chapter 4, in the 27th Pasuk. He meets Aaron in verse 27. Moshe tells Aaron all that God has spoken and all the signs that God has given Moshe. Moshe and Aaron in verse 29 gather all of the elders. Zikne Yisrael. Remember, Israel has a leadership even before Moshe appears on the scene. And, Mo- and Aaron speaks. Remember, Aaron's the spokesperson. So Aaron talks, says all the words that God has spoken to Moshe, and Aaron performs the miracles before the people. And the people believe. They, be- they hear that God has uh, remembered them, God has seen their suffering, and they bow down. They bow down 
they bend the knee and they bow down to God. That's the end of chapter 4. And now, in chapter 5, we're ready for the encounter of Moses and Aaron and the Imparo. That's our next little sequence of, in our study. I wanted to make one last point, though, about what, something that God said to Moshe before he gets down to Egypt. The story of the snare is protracted negotiation. And in verse number 19, on page 119, in chapter 4, we have God speaking. Moshe goes back to Yitro. He says, I have to leave. I'm going to see if my brothers are alive. Go in peace. And now we have a couple of very strange verses. Where are we? 119, verse 19 of chapter 4. Just a couple of verses before we start with Moshe and Paro. I want to make one point about the negotiation of God and Moshe. There's a lot of negotiations here. Moshe has agreed to go. God spoke to Moses in Midian. Return to Egypt. Go now. All the people who seek your life have died. Moses was wanted, you know, Pharaoh said Pharaoh sought to kill Moses. So I guess Moses' name was posted on the most wanted list, you know. God says, go back to Mitzrayim. They don't want to kill you anymore. No reason is given. The people that sought to kill you, the troublemakers, they're all dead. Fine. Go. So Moses took his wife, children, right? He took the staff of God with him. Now we have verse 21. Now God continues to speak. Moses is on the way down to Mitzrayim. What's, what's the rod of God? The staff that he performs the miracles with. The mateh. Moses' staff that became a stake. No, mateh just means, right, mateh means the staff of Moses that, that will be used. It's a good point. The staff of Moses that will be used to perform the miracles, exactly, okay. the miracles, the plagues will be God's. So the Mate Elohim is Moses. It's a good point. That's a good, a good observation. The Mate, Moses' staff is called the Mate Elohim because the staff will be used by Moses, right? Yeah. I would say something else actually, since you made the point. Good point, actually. And that Mate Elohim, it's a good point. The, the Sigmund makes a very good point. Why is it called Mate Elohim over here? He took the Mateh. But I'm wondering now whether Mateh Elohim doesn't have another meaning. Because remember that God said to Moses, or might not God said, God will say to Moses, it's out of sequence, later on about Aaron, right? You see, right? Moses takes Mateh Elohim in verse number 20, maybe is there for a different reason. Because Moses is going to go down to Egypt, he's going to meet Aaron. We saw last week, we jumped ahead last week, um, God said to, to Moses later, right, chapter 7, verse number 1, Behold Moses, I have made you an Elohim to Pharaoh. So we talked about that last week, that's a very unusual expression, I made you a God unto Pharaoh, an Elohim. We talked about that. But, and, and Aaron will be your prophet. That's, that's we know of God. God is Elohim and God has Nevi'im. God says to Moses in chapter 7, 
you are going to be an Elohim, and you're also going to have a prophet, just like me. Aaron is your prophet. I'm wondering now, after Sigrid's observation about the verse, whether calling the staff Mate Elohim, by Yach Moshe Mate Elohim when after all it's Moses' own staff, whether there's not a, a, actually a, a double significance over here. It means, yes, the staff with which God's miracles will be performed is the instrument to perform the miracles of God, but I'm also wondering whether the use of that strange expression here is not a foreshadowing of what the Chumash says later about Moses himself, that God sends Moses to Pharaoh, right, as a kind of Elohim. Because after all, that's how Pharaoh probably sees himself. So Moses, you will be the counterpart to Pharaoh. Of course you're not God, that's obvious. But as far as Pharaoh is concerned, the way you will have to deal with Pharaoh, he will have to perceive you as some kind of God. If, just, if he perceives you as less than a God, he's not going to take you seriously. Because you're not on the same level. In, that's true. That may be. I'm just saying, yeah. you see that in the Chumash is the question. Like even more so. yeah. That's true. It's true, but we know from Egyptian culture in general, the question is in the Chumash do we see this? And uh-huh. I, I, maybe we see it in the Chumash as well. My point is, just in terms of the nuances of Mateo Elohim, it could be that Mateo Elohim here is a foreshadowing of what God says later to Moses, that you will be an Elohim with Paro. Okay, in any event. Fine. And now... We have verse 21 and 22. Very interesting. And 23. Moses is not traveling down to Egypt. He took, accepted upon himself the mission. He has the staff. He brings the family down. Aaron's going to join him up. All that. Now on the bottom of 119. God said to Moshe, When you go down to return to Egypt, He's ready on the, on the, he's on the, he's traveling down there. Remember, when you get down to Egypt, I want to remind you of all the miracles that I have showed you how to do. And you will perform them before Pharaoh. But I want to warn you once, I want to remind you what I told you earlier. Don't get your hopes up. Because even though you perform these miracles, he will not, I'm going to harden his heart, whatever that means. It means in short, for our purposes here, he's not going to be convinced. He will not send the people out. Remember Moses, when you get down there, do not expect an instant success. It's not going to happen, no matter how many miracles you got. You'll perform the miracles, but remember what I told you earlier, said it earlier, it's not going to happen. Earlier God had said to Moses in the snap encounter, God said, I will perform the miracles. He's not going to listen until I send all of my miracles. Here, God takes it in a different direction. Very stunning. God said, remember what I told you earlier, Moshe. He's Moshe's traveling down. He's on the train. He's traveling down there with his tongue, right? Or traveling down to Mitzrayim. Remember, I want to remind you what I said earlier. The, remember all the miracles. He's not going to be too impressed by them. He's not going to... So then, for your Matel, Paro, when all that happens, here's what you should say to Pharaoh. This God did not mention earlier. Koamar Hashem, thus says the Lord. Benibach Chori Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. For Amarelech, and I say to you, Shalachet Benibi Yavdeni, 
I have commanded you to send my son to me to serve me. But you have refused to send my son to serve me. So behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. It's like saying, Moses is traveling down with the sides. Oh, there's one small detail I forgot to tell you. You got to tell Pharaoh, I plan to kill your firstborn son. And God didn't mention that earlier. You know what I mean? God only mentions this now, as Moses has already accepted the mission. Small detail I forgot to mention. Which, you know, that is, it's very striking. And of course, in the very next story, God seeks to kill Moshe or Moshe's son. It's not clear in the next story. In other words, the point here is the following. The relevance for our purposes. First of all, these psukim are extraordinarily interesting. What does it mean to say that Israel is God's firstborn son? I would suggest that God has other sons, by the way. That's number one. And everybody's God's child. But here it says, Israel is my firstborn son. Now we know it's very striking for two reasons. First of all, we all know in the Bible that firstborn sons do not do very well. Right? Usually are not the ones, the firstborn is usually not the one who does well. So in the book of Breshit, we were hard-pressed to find if Abraham is not the oldest, Isaac is certainly not the oldest, Jacob is unclear, right? It's not clear who the Bukhar in the case of Jacob is. Uh, Joseph is not the oldest, Judah is not the oldest, Benjamin is certainly not the oldest. The main children are never the firstborn. Firstborn are typically rejected. And even in the case where somebody is the firstborn son, whose primary, such as the story of Peretz and Zerach, Judah's twins, A, they're twins, and B, Peretz jumped out ahead. But fundamentally, the other one we thought would be born first. In short, the history of firstborns, beginning with Reuven maybe, but not only Reuven, all of them, is not a happy story. And I would go beyond it, that even though the firstborn in the Torah is chosen, in other words, in the story of the Exodus, the ones who were singled out are the firstborn. Right? Because the pharaohs, the firstborn of Egypt are killed, and the firstborn of the Jews survive. And we have, in chapter 13, the redemption of the firstborn, Pidyon Aben. That we have in, cha- in Exodus chapter 13, right? To be poder the Bechar. To be poder the Bechar, the human Bechar, and even to be poder the Bechar of your, of, your, of your animal. Right? So that we have. On the other hand, we all know that in the Torah, at the end of the day, the firstborn are not the leaders. They are replaced by a different group of people. Who are they replaced by in the Chumash? Who takes the role of the firstborn from them? The Leviim. The Leviim are Tachat Bechar. The Leviim in the book of Bamidbar are chosen instead of the firstborn. So the firstborn actually, I myself am the firstborn, but I must confess that the firstborn, outside of having to go to a Siyum on Erefesach, not to fast, the firstborns essentially have no role whatsoever. And the firstborn are clearly, whether they once had a role, but they are replaced in the Chumash by the, by the Leviim to serve God. So what does it mean then to say that God said to Moses, tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son? What is that actually about? Let's leave the question on the side. But what's interesting is that what follows is, and tell Pharaoh since he refuses to send my firstborn to me, my son to me, I'm going to kill his first, tell him, 
when he refuses to accept my directive, and the very next story, which we're not going to get involved in too much, because I said we're going to skip it, and it came to pass on the inn, but Derech Bamalon, that God met Moses and sought to kill him. Very famous story. And his wife, Sipporah, saves Moshe. How does she save Moses? By circumcising his son. So what do you see from the story over here? What, what, is, what is the message over here? Moses is being, before the negotiation, I want to tell you something very important over here that Moses, Moses has to take with him during the negotiation. I mean, the fact that you're going to warn Pharaoh that I plan to kill you, Moses was not told that earlier. That's, might, that might have been, from God's standpoint, something that Moses is not willing to do, but to tell the king, the Pharaoh, that I plan to kill you, or kill your child. Maybe as a negotiating ploy, God didn't want to frighten Moses off. Who knows? But there's another important point in the story, when Moses is being taught, I think, which is very important for Moses' mission, very, very important for Moses' mission. And that is, here the Chumash actually identifies the children with the, uh, in this case, the father. God said to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh that because you disobey me, that, these, that, that you just, you're mistreating my son, I'm going to be trying to harm my son, trying to kill my son, actually. I'm going to kill your son, because you refuse to listen. And then the very next story, Moses is going to die for some reason, and is saved by the circumcision of his son. So what is the, what is the message over here? Where is that? Um, where is it? Right. Chat, it's right next verse. How can you miss it? Page 120. Beginning in verse 24. Right here. It's right here. Right. Very famous. It's one of the more... Well, I would say one of the more mysterious stories of the Bible. God seeks to kill and for. But the point I think is this. What is, why is it important for Moses... Look, if God wanted to kill Moses, he'd be dead. So God doesn't really want to kill him. But God wants to teach him something. I think what God wants to teach Moses is a very important point on two levels. First of all, the mission that I send you on is not only about you. It's about you and it's about your descendants. And I would say, even more than your descendants, it's about the next generation. Here there's a tremendously important point about the man this course is called the man and his mission I believe the mission of Moses what is his actual mission that's a wonderful question what, what do you try to accomplish that's always a good question and sometimes you say that's obvious it's never obvious you know that what, what is the goal here here's the point about Moses' mission before we start with negotiating with Paro the question is what Moses is trying to you say Moses is trying to accomplish one thing Moses is trying to accomplish the first step to take the Jews out of Egypt. That's clear. To take the Jews out of Egypt. But there is a complicating factor in the story that maybe Moshe doesn't yet know. I think it's being hinted at over here. Because we know something that maybe Moses doesn't know. Because Moses didn't maybe read the Chumash the way we read it. But the point is, we know what it says in the Torah in the very beginning of the book of Exodus. It says that Joseph and the generation died. And a new Pharaoh emerged who did not know Joseph. And the Torah emphasized the generation died. Because we know, we know about the covenantal promise, which says explicitly, the fourth generation shall return to the land. And when you count out the generations after Joseph's generation dies, after Joseph and his brothers die, Joseph, Levi, all they died, 
And the Chumash then gave us, we read it last week, the genealogy of Levi. Levi died. And after Levi died, the Pharaoh, new Pharaoh, began to persecute. If he cannot Levi's children, Kahat is his, one of his children. That's the first generation of suffering. Amram is Kahat's child. There's two generations of suffering. Moses is Amram's son. Moses is the third generation of suffering. But the covenant with Abraham said, there'll be suffering. But the fourth generation shall return to the land. Which means that the generation after Moses are the ones that are going to return to the land. The slaves who were slaves in Egypt that Moses takes out are not going to get to the land. We know this already in the beginning of Exodus. It appears later on as a great novelty, but when you know how the Chumash works, it means, so what is Moses' mission actually? Is Moses' mission to take people out of Egypt? That can't be the mission. Every person, with one or two exceptions, who leaves the land of Egypt will die in the desert. How can that be the mission? The mission's got to be to get, the mission is explicit. I will bring you to the land of milk and honey. I'll bring you to the promised land. The land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land that I swore to give them. That's the mission. But the people that Moses deals with, they're not going to make it. There's a bunch of slaves and they're going to die in the desert. So who would, what's the real mission of Moses? The real mission will not be just to take people out of Egypt because that takes you nowhere. The mission's got to be to prepare the next generation to enter the land. The people, now, it's that's the not the... It's the beginning of the mission. Right, it's the beginning of the mission, but the actual goal here cannot, it's not enough to say we take you out of Egypt because those people we all know will never possess the land. So the actual mission must be not only about Moses' generation, the mission has to include, obviously, Moses' next generation. Which is why, by the way, which is why when you have the Israel leaves Egypt in chapter 12, you have chapter 12 in the first half of chapter 13, which is all of the Pasha we call Bo. First part talks about the Paschal Sacrifice. When you get beyond the Paschal Sacrifice, when you move towards the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13, there's something very stunning about the Chumash. On three separate occasions within these verses, the Torah makes the following observation. Someday your children are going to ask you questions. Someday your children are going to ask, what is this all about? Or someday you will have the opportunity to tell your children, three separate times after the Paschal sacrifice, the Torah talks about the parents generation A, generation 1, speaking to generation 2. Why does the Torah make that emphasize it? And by the way, I would say even within the Paschal sacrifice itself, you sprinkle the blood on the door to save the house, but the main people that are being saved in the Paschal sacrifice, in the context of the Paschal sacrifice, are not the parents. Because the parents themselves, presumably, are not the main prospective victims. The victims in Egypt are the firstborn children. So the ones in the Jewish homes that are being su- surviving are the firstborn children. So even in the Paschal sacrifice itself, the focus of the Paschal sacrifice is not the generation of Moses. The focus of the Paschal sacrifice is the next generation. So I believe that is all precipitate. The way the Chumash works is it drops a lot of hints, it drops a lot of clues. It creates an expectation. This little story over here, when God said to Moshe, tell Paro that Israel are my children, 
And if he doesn't let them go, I will kill his children. That is important within the larger context of Sefer Shemot, because it reminds us of the mission. The mission is not just about taking them out of Egypt. That would be ridiculous since all of them will die in the desert. They'll wander about 40 years and drop dead in the desert. How could that be the end of the mission? The primary people Moses has to, right, the primary thing is the next generation. And by the way, that actually is our tradition. Now we make a simple point about Moshe. Moshe. In our tradition, he has, an, he has an, a, a name we call him. It's called Moshe Rabbeinu. He's our teacher. The main people he's teaching, I presume, in the 40 years in the desert, are the children. Who's he teaching? He's teaching the, 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 the generation that he takes out. But the reason, the pur- purpose of wandering 40 years in the desert, the positive side of it, is to train a new generation within the desert. That's Moshe Rabbeinu. So the idea of that Moses' main role is to train, teach the people who will, who will he has two roles. He's also teaching those who leave, no doubt. But, his, but as a primary objective is the second generation, what we call the fourth generation. That's obvious in the Chumash. And it's also, I think, fairly obvious in terms of how Moshe is seen. He's seen as a teacher, basically. He's trying to train the next generation and the Chumash already see, sets it up for us. Moses, don't make you making a mistake. You didn't circumcise your son. It's not about you, actually. It's more about your son. Yes, back there first. I'll take all the questions. Meaning, they you're, you're through. If, if once this happens, there's not going to be an Egypt like Pharaoh, whatever he's set up, it's going to be over with. That's going to be over with, right? He has a different. Then, when you say you're not going to have a first, you're, we're going to kill your first born, if you don't have any more generations. Well, they killed all the boys, so you're not going to have more generations. Yeah, but I think it's symbolic. Of you're saying that. Let me just understand. You're saying that. The measures to Paro was eleven more generations. Yeah, oh, it's a yeah, Pharaoh. Pharaoh not right. More generations. Right. Well, they're killing the firstborn. He doesn't say I'm killing all of your firstborn children. He's only the first symbolically. Yes. What do you want to say? Right. Right. The question is. Okay, you're asking a question. You're asking, how do we understand these sins? Are they sin and punishment? Or is it something different? It's not that... The point is that I would say this. The sin of the spies, without getting into all the details, is not so... The reason they're wandering in the desert 40 years isn't so much because they sinned. But the point is, the people say, we don't want to go into the land, we're afraid to go in, we can't go in, let's go back to Egypt. If you say that, if you say I'm not ready to go into the land, and I'm afraid to go into the land, and I don't have the faith to go into the land, I wouldn't say it's just a punishment that you don't go into the land. I would say it's a consequence of the fact that you're not ready. What Moses does when he prays to God is to ask God for time. God's very angry. Moses says, okay, I understand you. they don't want to go. He doesn't ask that they go into the land, by the way. It's not like the golden calf where he prays, you should spare them, let's move forward, forget about it, let's move. He doesn't say that. Because what's the point? They don't want to go. Moses doesn't say take them into the land, most of them else, don't destroy them. Give us time, give us more time for, for, a new, for a new community to emerge. So I would say that the spy episode should not be read just as sin and punishment. 
Because obviously, how could they go into the land? It makes no sense. They say, we, we can't go in, we're grasshoppers. You can go in? No, you can't. If you think you're a grasshopper, you're a grasshopper. What, what can we do? They can't, we can't fight. Okay, I'm going to destroy them. Don't destroy them. Give us an opportunity to build a, a new community. It, it, it takes, it takes a, 40 years is a generation. It takes a generation to build a new community. It doesn't happen like that. God says, okay, I'll grant you that request. Yes, what do you want to say? And then you, and you, okay, but you, you answered the question in the sense, I was thinking, is it the grandchildren that are entering the land? But you're saying it's the children. Children. The fourth generation. The Chumash says it clearly. Yeah. Okay. The Chumash marks it out for us, actually. Yeah, what do you want to say back there? Just that I think, to me, um, this idea that God is the father of, of all of these children, and this idea that you're not letting, you know, you're not doing for my children what I want you to do, so I'm going to slay your, your firstborn son. I think it goes in direct contradiction to Pharaoh and who he is, where in the beginning of the chapter, beginning of the book, he says, well, we're going to kill all of the sons that are born. All the boys that are born are throwing away. As if he has no ability not only to remember he has no ability to even think in the future about people other than himself in this moment, right here and now, this generation. He doesn't even understand the importance of the next generation. He's willing to throw them all in the water because he's so afraid that some prophet's going to arise. Well, that's true. He certainly doesn't care very much about the Jewish continuity. That's clear. I mean, God singled out... God only said the firstborn. God did not say, I'll destroy all the Egyptians, but... He said all the boys. What's the, the boys, right. Firstborn is a, I think in this context, it is the successor. Firstborn, that we do have in the Chumash. That the natural success, the Chumash presumes, the book of Genesis is going against that in a sense, it's countercultural. But the assumption is that the firstborn child, I mean, many tr- tr- traditional cultures tend to work that way. Right. We know, you know, Tiki Tiki Tumbo, right? You ever read the, the, the little children's yeah. book? Yeah. You know? Firstborn, first, firstborn son, you know? It's very important, you know? Fourth. And the uh, firstborn son, I forget the name of the Firstborn son takes his father's place. In traditional societies, the assumption is that if there's many sons, let's say, several sons, that in terms of who will succeed, who the, who the father is the king, which child succeeds the father, the assumption is that the firstborn son succeeds. And in the Chumash, by the way, at least in Sefer Devarim, the firstborn son gets an, he gets an extra portion. Mm-hmm. The firstborn son in the Torah, Devarim, gets a double portion. So obviously, and even the story of Jacob and Esau, it's obvious that the first being the firstborn carries with it a significance. I would say it has to do and more with it, succession. It's the death of a blessing. It's the death of it's the inability to have succession. God says to Pharaoh that I'm going to destroy the one who would naturally succeed you. I think that's the point of the firstborn. Yes. You, 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 we got a little sidetracked. You started to say about saying three times that you have to teach these events. In other words, the forgetting, the issue of forgetting immediately, that, 
why is it that, I mean, it just happened? Why? You started to talk about that, and we got sidetracked. No, no, I thought we got sidetracked. I think that my point is... <laughs> not sidetracked. My point is that the emphasis in the Torah, suddenly the Torah talks about parents saying something to their children, children asking questions. That why suddenly now does the Torah say three different occasions, a few verses, talk about the children who are going to ask questions? And the answer is because at the end of the day, that's the key point of the story. One of the keys of the Paschal sacrifice is not the parents, but the children. Which is why the Passover Haggadah, of course, is focusing on the intergenerational learning. Haggadah picks this up, obviously, when it talks about, it sets up the whole Haggadah as a set of questions that children are asking parents, or that people are asking each other. Start with four questions. And throughout the Haggadah, there are four different kinds of children, there are four questions, and the whole Haggadah is framed in terms of question and answer. Why do we eat the matzah? Why do we eat the mara? It's framed in terms of questions and answers. In my Haggadah, I talk even more about that. But the point is, now it's not a, this is not a digression whatsoever. This is actually probably the most critical point. That Moses is, Moses is being told, before he negotiates with Paro, which we'll get started now, what are the goals over here? You have to know what your goals are. It's not just taking them out of Mitzrayim. The goal is going to be, I would say, building a nation. But you have to remember, you're trying to build a nation out of a bunch of slaves. At the end of the day, the Chumash is going to tell us that you can only move people so far. People that have a slave mentality. You're not going to change their way of thinking overnight. It's not going to happen. It can, it can begin to happen. But at the end of the day, it's going to take more. It takes two generations. The story, the Torah is a story of two generations. You don't change people's attitudes and, and assumptions in a short amount of time. It doesn't happen. Anybody who, think, who goes into something going to change everybody's thinking is bound to be deeply disappointed. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes thinking changes in very rapid ways, but it usually is an accident or a, a product of circumstance. How people think about things. In our own time now, I would say, it's fair to say that the uh, computer and the internet, we don't even have a sense, have changed the way, to some big degree, the way people think and function. It is a, it is a, it is a sea change in terms of how people see themselves and the other, and it's, it has all kinds of implications for us, this technology, immense immense changes and we haven't seen the end of it yet and we don't have to, we processed it but that sort of happens no one sat down and said I'm going to change the world but Facebook has to some degree changed many things what does it mean to say I have 2,000 friends let's start with that I don't know me I got about two friends I don't know what does it mean to have a friend someone what does it mean you got 2,000 friends what, what? the point is what does it mean what does it mean I mean the, the, we haven't actually I think this is something I'm weak I say within Drisha, we're doing all these programs now to deal with, I think, very important issues that confront the Jewish community, confront the world, which we're part of, doing this series on hunger, all kinds of stuff, in mental illness, prayer, study of Talmud. We're doing these series, which are, I think, phenomenal, actually. I don't think we've understood what this means. I mean, I can say myself. The implications of all this, what does it mean to say that when you write something now, you can change it in an instant? Let's start with that. But it's still there. It's, it's, also, it's, it's always there. That's, not, that's another point. It doesn't disappear. 
it exists in cyberspace. But what's it mean to say that I write something and then I can just erase it? What does it mean to say that it's being written on, on, a, on, on some kind of computer? In the old days, you wrote a book, okay? And you would scrub something in a book, a safer, something that exists forever. What does it mean to say that everything becomes ephemeral? If you, if you think these things don't affect us in some profound way, you're very wrong. We don't even understand how they affect us, but they, these are immense changes. My point is, but generally speaking, and even here it's not going to happen in a, in a year or two years or ten years. The point of the Chumash is, it's what God is trying to say to Moshe. But I, the mission I send you on is not going to happen in one year or two years. And actually, <coughs> it might not even be completed in your own lifetime. Moshe himself will never enter the land. Moshe's third generation. He's not going to go into the land. Everything that you are doing will, is to set up the future. And Moshe has the opportunity, I hope we get there someday, to actually, at least to, to see the land. He sees it from a distance. He can actually see, he can see what, what lies ahead, which is amazing. But he also cannot cross over, which is also interesting. In any event, all of this is, this is the very important, before you get to Pharaoh, you have to understand this, that's what God says. Before you get there, you have to understand something about the mission. And don't be disappointed, that's what God is saying. Because, let me tell you something, there will be many disappointments. Because Pharaoh is not going to accept what you're saying. He, he, he will accept it. At the end, he won't accept it. He will harden his heart. He's not going to accept it. Don't go into this thing expecting instant gratification or success. It's not going to happen. God has said it now twice he to Moshe. Him strong. What? He helps make him strong. Now, what, what happens when Moshe goes to Mitzrayim, actually? We'll have to start this next week. What does happen when he goes? He goes to Pharaoh. We'll start this next week. He goes to Pharaoh. He says to Paro, I want you to let the, we want to serve God for three days. And Paro says, forget about it. Are you kidding? How can I let them off for Shabbos, he says, no Shabbos? And he instructs, make it more difficult. Take away the straw. And the Jews, Jewish leadership, internal leadership, is yeah. responsible. And when the Jews can't produce the same number of bricks, how could they? They get beaten up. And they encounter Moses at the end of this parasha in chapter 5. He said, what are you doing to us? God should judge between you, right? God should judge you. Find you guilty. You've made us look terrible. You've given Pharaoh an excuse to kill us. What have you done? And Moses, what does Moses do? He turns to God. He says to God, what have you done? Lama Hariyota, why have you harmed these people? Why didn't you save them? Right? What's God's answer? You'll see. The point is, exactly what God was warning about, he says, don't expect, he says, what, he already said it twice, don't expect when you go to Paro that things are going to be good, he's going to harden his heart. This is not an easy guy. Doesn't, he said it, God has now said it twice. It makes no difference, actually. He still, Moshe actually responds exactly the way God thought Moshe would respond. And Moshe is, even with all the warning, it doesn't matter. Moses says exactly that. Well, what is that? I don't get it. I went down, you didn't save them. God said, says to Moshe, let me explain. But the subtext is, I told you from the beginning it's not going to happen right away. Did, did you hear what I said? I said it more than once. But you can say something a hundred times, sometimes we're not hearing it. 
Okay, what do you want to say back there? Why does God have to stiff in his heart? If he's, if he's a horrible pharaoh, he doesn't have to do anything. Okay, we'll ask the question. Well. The question, what does it mean that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Yeah. We'll get there. Why does he have to do that? Let me just say the following, yeah. make one observation, right? You're asking a very central question, a question that's been asked before. What does it mean to say that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Does that mean that Pharaoh has no free will? Or does it mean something else? He is a horrible guy, that's true. And there are several different approaches to this very central question. I will just say the following. I don't believe the Chumash is suggesting for one second that that the total explanation for Pharaoh's behavior is that God prevents him from, from listening to Moshe. That certainly cannot be correct. Now, what is true in the Chumash and we'll discuss that question because that's a, in terms of the negotiation is that Pharaoh cannot it's impossible for him to let them go because God prevents it or I will harden his heart means something else it doesn't mean he, it doesn't mean he doesn't have free will I, first of all let me just say one thing about we'll have to deal with this it's an important question we'll deal with it maybe next week or two weeks but I simply want to point out something interesting about God hardening Pharaoh's heart which is when you read the Chumash, this is not something that I, I'm not the first to notice this, but the first several times that Pharaoh's heart is hardened, the Chumash does not say God hardens his heart. So it's Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In the later plays, it says that God hardened his heart. In the first five, I believe, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. That's point number one. So we certainly can't say that the, the, the reason that Pharaoh doesn't let them go is he always wanted to let him go but God is stopping it that's not possible because the first few times it doesn't mention God at all that's number one number two more to the point is the question when the Chumash says I will harden his heart and he won't send them out does that actually mean that it's not his fault and what's interesting is we have one other example I can think of where where the book suggests to us that somebody is an instrument for God and yet that very story itself does not seem to let the person off the hook at all mm-hmm. and I'll just conclude with this observation this is a story that I once thought to write a whole book about this one chapter it's the last chapter of the book of Shmuel in that story that's where David takes the census and this, the, first, the first verse is like this God's anger raged against Israel. It's chapter 24 of the second book of Samuel. God's anger continued to rage against Israel. And God incited David against them saying, Go and number Judah and Israel. You get the sense of that verse. God's angry at Israel. God wants to punish Israel. So God, if I yaset, God incites David to take the census. You get the sense, if you read that verse alone, that David has no choice. God is causing David to do wrong. The only problem, and, then, and in the chapter he takes the census, and many Israelites die, 70,000. But the problem with that reading is, when you read the chapter, there is no sense in that chapter that David is, 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 is an innocent victim. The entire chapter focuses around David and David's sin. David's confession. I have sinned grievously, I have been grieved, I have acted foolishly. There's absolutely no sense at all that when the book of Shmuel says, Vayaset David Bahem, 
that God, there it says, David, God incited David against them, which is even worse than Vayichazeket Leith Paro, but there's no sense that David is an innocent, so obviously both in that story, which by the way is based on Pharaoh, the last chapter of Shmuel, um, it must mean something else. So we'll have to discuss what it might mean. It does not mean it's not his fault.